there is a congregation that I visited once that they have this bookmark that goes in the hymnal. And it's based, the, the title of the bookmark is the ABCs of such and such a congregation. And they have it listed cutesy in an alphabetical way. Um, oh. But one, one of the points on it, well, first off, one of them is like, we, we like noise. We like babies. We like kids. If your kid gets restless, we don't care. Yeah. If your kid is loud, we don't yeah. care. Yeah. We want you a here. A noisy church is a living church. And, a, and then I, my comment yeah. is a noisy church is a living church. Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the letters is, uh, if a baby is distracting you, go find somewhere else to sit. It's basically like, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Children and the church, children in the church, it's a complicated subject, especially when you throw music into the mix. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bariza, and this is Music and the Church. It is so great to be back after the holiday season, and I am really excited about the conversation we're having today with Anita Smolin. She is the Youth and Family Ministry Director at Trinity Lutheran Church in Bethesda, Maryland. She and I know each other because I was the organist choir director there back in 2015 and 2016, and we have been friends since then. In this conversation, Anita and I start out talking about singing children's songs in worship services, but we end up talking about a lot more. We talk about including and respecting children as our little brothers and sisters in the faith. We ask, why should children be in worship services at all? When should they be in the services? We also get into the denominational beliefs that influence why some churches don't have children in worship services at all. Here's a little more about Anita. Her master's degree is from Luther Seminary in Children, Youth, and Family Ministry. She is also part of the Disability Ministries team of the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. She is also a fantastic person, yay for awesome coworkers who end up becoming friends. Anita and I recorded this interview last spring. I was living in Ohio and she came to visit. I was working at an Episcopal church at the time, and now I'm in Missouri at a UCC church in the Congregationalist tradition. So of course, I'm doing some things differently now than I was at my previous job, including singing songs with little kids in the nursery every Sunday, which is a lot of fun. A couple things to know before we dive into the interview. Show notes, including links to the resources we mention, are at musicandthechurch.com slash 34. Secondly, I am moving Music and the Church to a monthly schedule, so 12 episodes this year. Last year, I did 27 episodes, and that was awesome and also a lot. Uh, so monthly episodes, here we come. So now, here is Anita Smolin and I talking about welcoming children into worship services. A noisy church is a living church. We appreciate noise. At the same time, you know, sermons, regardless of how long or short they are, are not necessarily designed for, again, depending on who's preaching and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Because I have seen, I have seen some pastors who are able to do a 10 minute sermon that incorporates everybody. Yeah. But, but that's hard. That's and hard. And that's not every sermon because sometimes you have these hard spiritual texts where you're like, let's talk about divorce this morning. Yay. Yay! Jesus hard words. Yay. <laughs> Jesus hard words. Um, but I have seen, I have seen some pastors that, you know, instead of using the d divorce texts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, we'll pick one of the other lectionary texts for that Sunday. Mm -hmm. yeah. And yeah, can incorporate, I mean, instead of it being a 20-minute 20 20 minute sermon, it's a 10-minute sermon mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, depending on the culture of that particular yeah, congregation. Yeah. yeah, is enabled to, you know, a three-year-old is going to find something and is going to be mm-hmm. engaged in that sermon. Maybe it's in the first three minutes. Mm-hmm. And then for the rest of that time, they're like, and I'm going to go color. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. But they've been engaged. But they've been engaged some point, somehow. Yeah. This past Sunday, I just assumed that Brandon had taken Nico out of the church service mm-hmm. um, because I didn't hear him through the whole service and I can't actually see where, where they're sitting. And then I heard him at the very end of the sermon. <laughs> and then I found out later, oh, Brandon had been putting Cheerios one by one <laughs> for Brandon because like he didn't want to take Nico out into the, yeah. into the nursery or whatever and, <laughs> and but is that really a bad thing like no like, no it was I was like oh that's that's actually that's really really great and we also didn't have like because it's not just distracting for other people if you have a child who's flipping out at a service it's also distracting for the caregiver of the child yes because they're like oh, I have this child who's trying to lurch himself out of my arms and I'm exhausted yeah and yeah, because it's also the, and, it, and it's not just that, but it's the quote-unquote embarrassment of the parent that it's my child who's being oh, the... who's being normal. Who's, who's <laughs> being... De- but who's, who's being a child. Who's yeah. being a child. Mm-hmm. And it's suddenly... And one, everyone looks around at you. Oh, correct. that's your kid making that noise. Ah. Correct. Let's talk about kid songs. Kid songs! Okay. So we have a problem. In, and it, maybe it's a made-up problem, but it's a problem I've actually experienced in a lot of churches, which is that kid songs aren't considered appropriate for services. And you and I, Anita, don't agree with that. Nope. So I, I feel like I want to start out by saying, like, I haven't always held this viewpoint. Because in the past, I thought, oh, kids' songs. By which I mean, like, the Jesus Love Me variety of, you know, my God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. Those kinds of songs with the hand motions or the what have you. I always thought, oh, those, those that's the milk of the word. That's not the meat of the word. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly not something that I, as a minister of music, as an organist or whatever... It's not something that I should be, this is not how I'm going to best teach the congregation through songs. Because I do, I'm, I'm not Lutheran, but I certainly absolutely buy into that whole, like, the sermon is, is in the song. Mm-hmm. And this is a huge opportunity for spiritual spiritual education in addition to the direct worship of God. This is, like, part and parcel of what we're doing in congregational singing on Sundays. So I always thought, oh, well, I, I don't want to sing, like, we're walking in the light of God, you know? Yeah. Or, or what, you know, whatever, sim- so, quote, unquote, you can't see me right now with my quoting fingers, but my little quoting finger of, like, oh, these are the simple songs. I'm not going to do that. And... As my understanding of theology has changed, so has my thinking about the purpose of children's songs. Mm-hmm. And in in that, I understand children to be part of the capital C church. Yep. And I think, huh, if children are part of the capital C church, well, one, that means they should be part of the congregational worship, the collective congregational worship. And two, well, why shouldn't they have songs that are just for them? If I, I mean, because I have done this before, I thought, oh, you know what? I'm going to program this and such song because everyone over 80 is going to love it well, why can't I program a song that everyone under 10 is going to be like, oh, I love that one. We sing that one in Sunday school and they can really sing that out. Yeah. Like, so there, so there's that. But then also like having having a, a child whose face just lights up mm-hmm. at certain songs, which by the way, are not any of the Lutheran crowds that I so dedicatedly sing to him. You know, <laughs> surprise, surprise, this little rambunctious person is not getting excited at Children of the Heavenly Father, right? What? That's his sleepy song. And he goes, no. And I'm like, yes, it's your sleepy song time, buddy. (laughs) Sleepy song. (laughs) Go to sleep, buddy. (laughs) But for real, like, like that's not what we're singing in in the car going places. But like, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty. Yeah, of course he was. Ooh, fun. This is like that fun song. And like, that's a big shift for me to think, oh, that is worthwhile. Yes. And then adding that other layer of well, Jesus said, let the children come to me and the kingdom of heaven. You have to be like a little child to enter Mm -hmm. into the kingdom of heaven. It makes me think, huh, 
much as I think, oh, we need the meat of the word in the, in the songs, hmm, maybe there's something more to this. Maybe in my, maybe my, maybe my wisdom is foolishness here. Fair. If you're going to, when, when folks are planning hymns, like I love, I mean, Children of the Heavenly Father. It's such a good time. It's such a, like, my mom cries every time because it was played at every single baptism at the church that I was baptized in. And so, like, she remembers my baptism and la la la. And those are, I mean, it's such a great hymn. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of another super wordy hymn. Yeah, we're certainly not putting down the super wordy No, hymns. we're not putting down. And there's an absolute place for them and memorizing all the stanzas of them. And there is comfort in singing those. Yes. Yeah. There's a, an extreme comfort in singing those. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes our friends who are planning hymns are picking those hymns to the exclusion of part of the body of Christ. Yeah, that's, then that's, that's where we're getting Because I think in the past I have chosen hymns to the exclusion of part of the body of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Yeah, so that's that's why I think those those hymns are important. And the flip side of that is the conversation. So uh, uh, um, Jesus Loves Me. We sing that to our three-year-olds. We sing that to just about everybody. And it's one of those hymns that I think in the Catholic, in the, in the, um, it's one of those songs that in the Christian tradition is universal. Mm-hmm. Regardless yeah. of what denomination you grew up, it is very much so universal. You know this one. You know this one. You might not know all three stanzas. I don't know all three <laughs> But the first verse of Jesus Loves Me. We all know that. We all know that verse. So we sing it to our 10-year-olds. Um, we sing it to our three-year-olds. We, we, we sing it with them. We teach it to them. Mm-hmm. And it's a part of their, their DNA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fast forward 70, 80 years. I have talked to many a pastor. Heck, I have experienced this once. Where a pastor will go into a nursing home to lead worship. And they will pick hymns that have something to do with the text of that day. Mm-hmm. And they work really hard. And then in, in the where I'm, the place that I'm referenced that I'm, I'm thinking of, the last hymn of the worship service that is an, in the dementia ward, mm-hmm. in the memory ward. Mm-hmm. You know, they pick these great hymns that they think people are going to know, blah, blah, blah. And then they preach and people are falling asleep and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, these are folks with, at, towards the end of life. The second that that pastor starts singing Jesus Loves Me, there is a room of people that suddenly are lucid. Mm-hmm. That yeah. are awake. Mm-hmm. And that for that hot second, they know that Jesus loves them. They not, might not remember who they are, where they are. Anything like that, mm-hmm. but for a hot second, they remember. I'm not talking about the kid songs that are theologically weak. No, or, well, there certainly are. Yes, yeah, there we're are, definitely there, not talking about that. We're not talking about that. But, I mean, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Every single person can agree with that is solid theology. Mm-hmm. Yep. Done. Moving yep. on. But we're talking about those those kid songs that have, have depth and meaning, like Jesus mm-hmm. loves me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, or have capital T truth. Capital yeah. T truth, yeah. Because yeah. that is a, a simple truth, but that is also the ultimate truth. Correct. Yeah. But that carries that carries through life. So when you're mm-hmm. teaching when you're teaching kids things like Jesus loves me or mm-hmm. this little light of mine, mm-hmm. that carries through all of mm-hmm. life. And that very simple affirmation is like a continual capital T truth. Correct. Right. Like it never becomes untrue that we should be shining our light. Correct. Right? It never be. You know. So that that's what like like we're very clearly not talking about weak theology children's songs, which I think should never be sung, period. Like, why would you sing that if I want to sing something with weak theology? Actually, why don't you just sing a secular song? Itsy Bitsy Spider, here we come, whatever, it's fine. You know, like, 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 there's nothing, I don't think there's anything the matter with singing secular children's songs. No. But like, in a church setting, you should never be singing something with no. weak theology. If everything's going to be geared for somebody who's 20 and above, mm-hmm. we're leaving out a huge chunk of, a huge chunk of the body of Christ. 
So what do you have to say for, because like, you know, we're, we're, we're talking mostly to church musicians and pastors. Yep. And if you're in a church that currently never would sing something like Jesus Loves Me, mm-hmm. how, how do you see that, like in your mind, how, how could a, a church walk towards an inclusion of children in their services? Like, like what are, what are steps that you could take? So I once had somebody say to me, we only do hymns that are in the hymnal. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I come from, um, the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Um, and in our hymnal, our current hymnal, um, the uh, ELW, Evangelical Lutheran Worship, um, is Jesus loves me in that hymnal? Yep. There you go. Jesus loves me is in that hymnal. Mm -hmm. This little light of mine is in that hymnal. Mm -hmm. It is a hymn in the hymnal. Um, and so if you are coming from a place where you have, you have people who are like, oh, like, I don't want to sing anything that isn't in the hymnal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They're there. Or, or who are skeptical of like, oh, this might be theologically weak. Yes. Which, but, which, which again, I would say, why are you singing those? Why are you if singing you, those? If you actually think that that is theologically weak, you shouldn't be singing it. Yeah. Find something else to sing. Yeah. yeah. And also the other, so for, it's in the hymnal, so it's there. And they're, again, theologically sound. Um, and then I'm not saying that every single hymn on a Sunday should be that yeah, should no. be that no, no, no. like maybe one. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have great hymns in the, the ELW that like Siahamba, the we are marching in the light of mm-hmm. God. That is simple language that a three-year-old went and it's repetitive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we are marching in the light of God. We are marching. marching we are marching. marching. We are marching. Ooh. We are marching in the light of God. God. So like you can bring these, these songs in, but I think that also like, like what would you say in terms of like teaching a congregation? Cause I think so, that's, that some of this is also like understanding, understanding children as part of the body of Christ and not the little people who troop in and sing for the Christmas pageant and then troop out. Yeah. You know, like, cause oftentimes if we have children quote unquote leading in worship, mm-hmm. they're like up at the front doing something. Oh, they're so cute. They've got their angels on the little angel wings and like, and not actually seeing them as as our brothers and sisters in Christ, yeah. our very little brothers and sisters, but also but they are they are brother, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, um, that it's a culture thing of a congregation. Yeah, and so I've seen some pastors that every single sermon that they give, they kind of hammer that it, it might be surreptitious, it might not be, but they they talk about how our little ones are a part of the full body of Christ because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. all of our little friends have vocation and gifts, but. Not mm-hmm. the point of this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So part of it is culture. Yeah. And so it's, and it's quite honestly, it's the leadership of the congregation. And I'm going to go so far as to say it's the pastor, it's the staff, mm-hmm. and it's the council. It's the yeah. church council. It's mm-hmm. your board of trustees or your deacons mm-hmm. or whatever your dom- denomination calls it. Is It's a culture shift. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I hear that nearly every Sunday at the Episcopal Church where I work, which is that children are the body of Christ and children are welcome here. And that means children make noises. Yeah. And so you... Yeah. You have to set people up for that. Yeah. Which also makes parents feel more okay with the noises that their children are making because there is the head pastor saying, your children are welcome here. Yeah. 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 And that sometimes means that you might have to move. Like if, if there's somebody who is complaining about noise or sound, mm-hmm. don't sit where there's a baby. Mm-hmm. Don't, mm-hmm. you know, move to a different part of the congregation or different part of the worship space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a culture thing. Um, I also think there is something to be said for, again, lifting up the vocation of a three-year-old because a three-year-old has gifts for leadership and worship. I grew up in a congregation um, that we were learning new liturgy and genius move on um, the director of, youth, uh, director of music ministries part. She had the youngest, it was called the cherub choir in that congregation. Mm-hmm. She had the cherub choir learn the liturgy <gasps> first. Oh, so they were like, we know this holy, holy, holy. Oh, that's brilliant. And so when we were learning these new liturgies, mm-hmm. it was it was our youngest friends who were teaching it to, yeah, it was yeah. 
genius. It was yes. absolute genius. Yes. yes. Um, well, this is something where, like, not to get too far afield, but if you have Sunday school teachers who are on board with this or Christian education or whatever, yeah. you can say, we're going to be singing this song in a month. Let me teach it to you if you don't yeah. already know it. Can you sing it with the children every Sunday so that when you get there, it's their song and, oh, we're singing my song in church. Yeah. And then, and potentially depending on the age of the child and their inclinations, it might also be the one that the parents have been hearing in the car. Yeah. And, and here you go. And now we're all singing it collectively in liturgy. Correct. Which also really helps for the age of children who aren't able to read words yet. Right. Correct. Because they can learn to sing Jesus loves me. Mm-hmm. by rote, and then they can actually truly participate in the liturgy because they know they have memorized the song, or they have memorized the Sanctus, they've memorized the Agnus Day, they've memorized whatever it is that they're singing, mm-hmm. they know it. Yep. But it was an absolute genius move, but it was using it was using our youngest friends mm-hmm. to be leaders in, in church in a very, very public yep. way, and in a very important way. It wasn't mm-hmm. token. It no, wasn't, that's like literally like they're leading the congregation. They're literally leading the congregation. Yeah, yeah. and it's it, it, like, it's not token, it's also not cutesy. Yeah. And which, I mean, okay, babies are cute because they're cute. The cherub choir is cute because they're little cherubs. Yes. But, but also, like, it's not like putting the children up there for us to ooh and ah and take pictures of. Correct. They're not performing to us, they're worshiping. Yeah. And they're leading our worship. And literally. it's not, yeah, and it's not the, like, every, so I, I helped direct this choir when I was in high school. I was, mm-hmm. like, the student director thing. Mm-hmm. And every time they sang an anthem, like, they front-loaded it on the service. So, like, there was, there was still mm-hmm. a second anthem during, like, the offertory. Yeah. And it was still, again, it gave them, it gave them a chance to still serve, but in a, in a little bit of a different way and age appropriate. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it always bothered me a little bit that, you know, we, we, you know, we stood them up, we lined them up. They sang their- Everyone's cute. And then they'd clap. Yeah. And then they would clap and then they would go back to their, to their seat with their parents, Mm -hmm. which again is appropriate because these are like Mm four-year-olds. Are they going to be able to sit away from their parent and- No. Yeah. No. Are they going to- yeah. So they would they would go sit back with their parents, but again, they would sing their anthem at a time in the worship service that didn't fit. Like it always felt a little off kilter. Yeah. We're doing this on purpose so we can have this like moment of like yes, performance for the children. Yes. And these Sundays where we were doing the liturgy stuff, like they would go sit with their parents and then like at some point during the hymn of the day, we would call them up to the near mm-hmm. the piano mm-hmm. to learn to for example, the Sanctus. Mm-hmm. And so we would call them up, and so they would stay for that little part, and they would sing the Sanctus, and then the con- we would do it twice. Oh, one, as we were you're least, learning, because you're learning, we were learning the new liturgy. And like that, that felt more, I mean, that was leadership. Mm-hmm. Well, it was, I mean, what I could see something that working really well is the, the anthem, quote-unquote, that the children are singing becomes the congregational hymn of the church. Yeah. So maybe you're going to learn a new congregational hymn, so the children learn it, the children memorize it. Yep. And now the children know it, and they and, may, and maybe they do sing it for the congregation. But then it's also something that you repeat in later services yeah. as like this is now a hymn that our church sings and knows. Correct. Yeah. I mean, there's there there are, yeah there's yeah. that's one. But example. That, that's a way to like make it less of a performance and more of a we're leading worship. Yeah. 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 What I've realized is that all of this all of this stuff with children being fully fully included in the body of Christ, but also being full leaders, mm-hmm. is really a culture is the culture of a congregation. The congregation that I served in Baltimore, they instituted, and I didn't like the name of it, but it wasn't my battle to pick. They had ushers and then they had junior ushers. Hmm. But because of how they led, how um, the flow of communion, the junior usher 
had a very distinct job. So it oh. wasn't just so like was the junior usher like an acolyte? They no, an we acolyte had an acolyte too. Oh, okay. So we had we had acolytes. These are like welcoming greeter people. Yeah, so ushers like would hand out the yeah. bulletins and stuff like that. And a lot of times, depending on the junior usher, like the usher would just hand them the bulletin and just stand there and like mm-hmm. let the kid lead. Mm-hmm. And yeah. again, this was a part of the culture yeah. of this congregation. Yeah. And by all means, like mm-hmm. if 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 a kid and it it felt pretty authentic because the the usher was just kind of there making sure that. Yeah. Well, it could also be the case where, like, you normally have, like, two meters and greeters. Yeah. Any other bulletins. Well, one of them can certainly be a child. Yeah. Um, as I long just, as the child is able to stand. Yeah. You know. And, well, any, but. Well, I, well, sorry, I mean, like, 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 able to, like, stay in one place. Yes. Yeah. To stay in one they place. Could, they could sit, they could be in a wheelchair, they could whatever. But, yeah. I, but I mean, like, they have to, like, not be a four-year-old who's like, oh, done with this. Yeah. <laughs> the next thing. It was a rite of passage in that congregation. I think you had to be in second grade. Okay. And they did a, a little commissioning service during the middle of, of our oh, Sunday school yeah. opening of, like, you are now um, on the list to be a junior usher. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and there was and a that's blessing. An important part of that. And that's a part it of it. It is important of if someone handing out bulletins and yeah. people. Yeah. Um, and then during communion, because of the the weird flow of the, the worship oh, like space. The building. Mm. The, I mean, this was. The layout of the congregation. The layout of yeah. the yeah. worship space. Where the ushers directing people where to. Du- the ushers yeah. were directing where people where to go. The junior usher, they, I mean, they, they helped people up the stairs, but they also held, they held the cups for the pouring chalice. So in this particular congregation, they had the little, they had the little glass or plastic, um, communion cups, cups yep. the, the quote unquote shot glasses. Mm-hmm. Um, and then folks would then go up the stairs. So you had two, you had one adult, sometimes a high school kid, but you had one person in the, in the congregation who was leading people out of their pew and letting them know when, yeah, to, go when to go up. up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and one, a junior usher who was holding, again, I don't like that name, but whatever, a youth who was holding the plate of cups. Yes. The empty cups. Yeah. And then um, there was another adult who was holding, you had to go up three steps to take communion. And so there was another adult who was kind of standing there. And this is by virtue of height, Mm -hmm. like that you needed somebody who was stable and was tall enough to help an 80-year-old lady up the stairs. stairs. Um, And then the communion was behind, the rail was behind the altar. Like the communion rail was behind the altar. Yeah. So you had the the altar and then, yeah, the communion rail was behind. So when you were taking communion, you were looking out at the congregation instead of at the... I've never seen that before. I've seen it. I've seen it a couple times. This was like the only the second time I'd ever seen it in my life. Yeah. Um, And there's, there's theological reasons behind it because you are like... If, if we're thinking of communion as being the meal of the body of Christ, you are looking at the body of Christ. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and there's some churches that are circular. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. it's literally a circular. Altar. Yeah. And so then you had that, like the, you had the pastor who, and the assisting minister would go through with communion. And then at the end, the acolyte um, was the one who was taking the cups. Mm-hmm. So you, yeah. you just, you disposed of your yeah. cup on your way out. Mm-hmm. I even think they had another adult standing, again, adult because of height stability and, and height stability, and size. Yeah, that was standing there with the three steps down. But you need it because of the physical space. Yeah. You needed more. You need a lot of hope to do that. Yeah. Well, so so what, what we're getting at here is that these jobs were not created for the purpose of occupying a child. Like, it was like something that, oh, we have identified something that we need and a child can do this. Correct. So let's have a child do this. Yeah. Which is, I mean, often the role of acolytes in churches. Where yeah. It's like, we need someone who does this. A child can do this. So let's have a child do this. Because yeah. there are many things that we need in a church that a child can't do. Yeah. And, you know, and that's, that's just, yeah. you know, that's okay. God has gifted us in many ways and yeah. we serve in the ways that we and, can. And the flip side is I've been in part of congregations where the acolyte felt like a token. Yeah. Well, because you know? in some churches the acolyte is a token. The acolyte is, very much so, the acolyte is a token. Mm-hmm. And when I say token, I mean it's like, okay, we have an acolyte, we have a kid, we have a kid leading worship. Kid. Look, Yay! Yeah, um, but it's not really. But it's not really. Like, it's just a job. It's not something that's important. 
you know. Yeah. Well, that's how I often feel about children singing like performancey kind of things in a church service. Yeah. Unless they are literally replacing the choir's anthem, which often they're not. They're mm-hmm. like icing on the cake, and it, it it just feels like well, we did this because they're cutesy and we iced the cake. So what this is making me think of is actually if you are in a church that is is like Trinity, which is you know concerned about sound theology and following you know follows the rubric follows the liturgy i think in a way it's actually easier to bring children into a church like that if people are not used to it because you can actually like have that say well this is the theological basis for this the children are christians yeah they are the church capital c Mm -hmm. so this is why we want them here whereas i think that if you're in a church um, cause I know we have, um, evangelical listeners who would not see children as part of the church until they have been born again in a evangelical mm, conversion okay. kind of sense. So if that is the understanding that uh, children are not Baptists, I think it's actually much harder to justify having children in the church because they're literally like the unbaptized heathen. Huh. You know, so yeah, put them in Sunday school where they're going to be educated about the faith. But if they're not actually a Christian, you said I'm yeah, saying, I know. Like, and and that's that's not what I'm not I'm not, certainly not saying all hashtag all evangelicals or whatever. Yeah. But there there are theological theological reasons why I've never been in a Catholic church that had nursery. I, maybe that exists, but I've I've never been in a Catholic church that has liturgy. It's because the children are the church, and of course they're in the church for yeah. the church service. Why wouldn't they be there, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas I've been in many, many evangelical churches where you never even saw the children. Like, hmm. they didn't even have a children's sermon or didn't even leave. They had junior church all through this, this yeah. service. You know? Like, like I actually grew up in churches where sometimes we'd visit and all the children would be gone except for my brothers and I because our parents were like, well, of course you're staying in the service with, with us. You know how to sit in the pew for a 45-minute sermon. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which speaks to my family's culture. But, like, <laughs> but, the, but there's a theological reason even why you wouldn't be singing children's songs in the liturgy. Yeah. Or in the church service, though, it wouldn't be referred to as a liturgy in mm-hmm. most of these churches. But there's a reason that these children's songs wouldn't be sung there because they're not for the capital C church. Huh. Yeah. All this comes back to, like, if if you don't actually believe that children are part of the capital C church and are, you know, yeah. the godless heathen who just happen to be have Christian parents, you know, unless you're preaching evangelistic services at the little babies all the time, which is not actually ca- the case in evangelical churches, then what's the point of having them in the service? My current congregation, it is incredible. The adults in that congregation are incredibly educated. They are. They are um, I mean, there are educated. multiple PhD, like people with multiple PhDs. I, w- I was working on my doctorate there, and it was completely unremarkable. Oh, you're one of us. One yeah. Of the many, many, many who have gone through this doctoral process. Yes. It's not the case for most congregations. It's not the case. It's not remarkable whatsoever. No, it's not remarkable whatsoever. I mean, in our in the church choir, I did the math the other day. There was the least educated person other than the 12-year-old who... We have a 12-year-old who sings with our adult choir. Because um, we don't have a youth choir. And she does a great job. Other than her, and she's in school. Yeah. The least educated person in the room is somebody with a bachelor's. Where I'm going with this is, is there are congregations where you stand up and read the NRSV, and you've excluded a lot of the adults in the room. Yeah. I think sometimes we need to think about who our adults are in the room, too. I, I agree. Because I agree. I, when, when I... The only, the only two worship services a year that I get to play in from start to finish mm-hmm. is Youth Sunday and this family service on Christmas Eve. Yeah. And I get to pick every single hymn, mm-hmm. every single prayer. Yeah. I get... I carte get blanche. A carte blanche, basically. I mean, if I, like, say something heretical, clearly they're going to be like, and no. But yeah. am I going to do that? Mm, no. But I have adults walk up to me that, yeah, there might be a double PhD, but do they always understand that really heady theological language? Especially uh, out of and hearing it. And hearing it. 
And so when people, um, you know, after we do Youth Sunday, people walk up to me and go, wow, I actually understood the story today. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes, like, sometimes if we're making it more accessible for our youth, I think we're making it more accessible for everybody. Mm -hmm. And Which isn't the same as weak theology. Which is not the same as weak theology. No, we're just saying maybe some of our words need to be a little simpler. Mm -hmm. Sentence structures. Sentence structure, vocabulary. And that doesn't mean we can't teach what incarnation or trinity or those jargon words mean. Like, I feel like that's that's a, that's a place where we would say it is important for a small child to learn what trinity means. Yes. Right? But that's that's different from saying let's have a complicated sentence structure. Yeah. As a necessity. Yeah. Now I'm going to to uh, toe-touch my way into heresy. When we talk about, like, when we talk about trinity, there's, when we're talking to kids about trinity, there's a lot of, a lot of ways we can talk about trinity, like. Oh, there's all the metaphors that are all heretical. Yes. Because <laughs> they all are. But at the same. <laughs> These are the ones that I've heard. But at the same time... It's a way to say, like, this is what the Trinity is like, but here's how it is not like this. Yes. But I think if you're trying to explain the Trinity to a four-year-old, I think toe-touching on the heresy is okay for that moment. Perhaps. For example, you've got the ice... Yeah. The ice heresy. But you can say the ice heresy and then say, but this is how God is not like that. Yes. And you can say... And have that as, like, the both and. Yes, and the both and. Here's something concrete, but God is not concrete in this way. Yes. But, I mean, if I was teaching a four-year-old that, I'm not sure I would get to that. Maybe if they were seven, I would. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. once you start getting a little older, once they can start understanding a little more of that, then by all means, like, it's okay. Because sometimes you need a little bit of a metaphor to get you down the road. Can we take this back to thinking about inclusion of children in the church? Because I think that if we... One of of my goals here is to think about how do we get kids to buy in? In this sense of saying, this is my church, I am identifying myself as yeah. a Christian. Rather than what I think happens if you have children on the periphery of the liturgy or outside of it mm-hmm. um, as their norm, even up through high school, then what you have said is that you are not church. Yeah. You are not in the in the group. So then you have to have this whole nother level of like buy-in or habitual, I come to church. Mm-hmm. And that is, I mean, that's a big leap to make, especially if the juncture is, and now I'm off at college, well... You're outside of your youth group or whatever, and you are not part of the church anymore. Yeah. Like, so part of this, part of this for me is to say, I want children, even at a young age, I mean, want to buy into congregational singing as like an identity I sing. Yeah. I mean, but also like bigger in like the spiritual picture of like, I mean, yeah, singing is important, but also like, I want children now, the four-year-olds to say, oh, I'm a Christian. Yeah. And to be thinking about what that means for them as a four-year-old, as an eight-year-old, as a 12-year-old. And yes, that changed. Yes, what that means, what that looks like in the way that you love your other, the older brothers and sisters, everyone Mm -hmm. else, the way that that looks changes. But if there is that sense of, oh, this is my identity, this Mm -hmm. is who I am. And that, I mean, that doesn't mean that they aren't reevaluating their faith and thinking or have moments of doubt or the dark night of soul. All that stuff is happening. But in that, like with that bedrock of it's already there yeah rather than i have to have buy-in as a college student or as a oh well i had a baby i guess i need to start going to church now yep. which happens to a lot of people oh yeah where it's like oh we have to think about church differently because oh now we have we have a kid and i'm i'm 32 and i i need to go to church oh okay we should find a church you know that that kind of thing like if if you can keep people going right yeah 15 years ago and i will try to find the study so that you can link to it um, but there were studies of, um, there were Pew, Pew got involved and Lily got involved. Like these mm-hmm. are. Is this like the, Pew Research Forum? Yes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. 
faith and faith and religion, pure faith and religion. Yeah, and, and I can I can link to these. Yes, and yeah. link to these. And they're um, the book Soul Searching, and I can't remember the author. Um, but he also did an extensive multi denominational. Mm-hmm. Wrote two books about this study that he mm-hmm. did. Um, one that was very general and like very academic, and then the second book was very um, theological in nature. Anyways, the one thing that um, both of these studies kind of started um, were stating was that the most important person in the faith life of a child is a parent. Not yeah. saying that you can't get around that. Oh, like, and, and I know people who have. Yeah. You know? um, but the most important person in the faith life of a child is the parent. Mm-hmm. And so if parents are seeing that this is important, then the child is going to see that this is important. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. you know, they're going to they're gonna grow up in that. So we talked at the beginning, we talked um, some about the culture. The culture of a congregation. The, the culture of a congregation. But then there's also how does the church walk hand in hand with the family? Mm-hmm. Whatever that family looks well, like. Yeah. Like how I grew up in churches where the children often did leave for during yeah. the service, but my, my siblings and I didn't leave. Yeah. And they're in one of these studies... I'm not sure if I can put my hands on it in time, but I'll give it to Sarah at some point. One of these studies said that if it's a congregation that really does, like the child never spends any time in the worship space, like once they get through confirmation or through high school or whatever, that kind of graduation from church and you don't mm-hmm. see the quotey hands. And you have the milestone and it's done. Yes. Yeah. Um, or the, the finish line. You've, the you, finish you've line. You've achieved a finish line and not a milestone. Yeah. The kids don't come back. Mm-hmm. And so there is there is value to keeping kids in worship because of that, because they are kind of ingrained in the faith life of that church. Mm-hmm. And then you're also not saying that confirmation or graduation from high school or, I guess, baptism, that born again, um, I can't really speak to that, so I'm going to shut up, that then the faith life of the child is over because, oh, they did this, they did it. Yeah. we're done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so one of the big issues is, is for parents is how does the church equip parents to be the most important person in the faith life of that child? Mm-hmm. And there are, there are churches who, um, you know, put in the hand, like, give out things like the Spark Story Bible that we've talked about or the World Story Bible mm-hmm. so that the parents can read those books. My church does, well, their Augsburg Fortress has a program, I think they call it Splash. And I realized that I come from a tradition that um, does infant baptism. Mm-hmm. So as soon as a child is baptized, they uh, we have somebody who we order a splash packet for them. Mm-hmm. And we mail the contents of the splash packet to the family at certain points. So one, like, I think for the first year of life of the child, there's a packet that goes out once a month. Oh, cool. And then I think when it's year two, I think it goes out quarterly. And maybe by year three, it's only a couple times. But by year three, on the third anniversary of their baptism, I think that's the last packet they get of this splash mm-hmm. thing. Where I'm going with this is in that splash packet, there are CDs of music. Oh, wonderful. And so um, I've been told, in fact, I had one parent come up to go, do Do you have an extra copy of that CD? Because we um, listened to it in the car so much. Uh, it died. It died. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And so it's, it's some of them are, are Sunday school songs. Some of them are just cutesy little lullabies that talk about baptism and you are a child of God. Yeah. And so that it's, it's again, it's one way of, of sending that stuff home. Yeah, but a huge thing is is being a curator of good good music. Mm-hmm. Um, good music, theologically sound, accessible to people with a very small range. Yep, and um, inclination towards peppy diatonic songs. Yes, peppy diatonic songs, preferably with hand motions. Yeah. <laughs> so that that's that's one easy thing. That's one super easy thing that um, church musicians, yeah, church musicians can do, mm-hmm. or church leaders generally, and church leaders yeah. in general. I mean, I'm, I was, I was, my brain was going mm-hmm. through the other yeah. 
the other resources that I would use that would not necessarily be specifically for for church musicians. Yeah, this is also a team a team effort. Yeah, you know? and it's and again it's a team effort. Mm-hmm. Back in the we as the church need to like I I said this a few minutes ago. I mentioned that um, parents are the most important yeah person in the faith life of a child. Back in the eighties, seventies, eighties, there was and even somewhat in the nineties, there was this shift that youth leader like churches started hiring youth directors in that kind of time frame. Um, and it was typically lay people, but some of them, and some of our larger churches, the the youth leader was a pastor, um, youth pastor, mm-hmm. pastor in charge of youth ministry, blah blah mm-hmm. blah, um, or pastor in charge of Christian education. Mm-hmm. And in a couple studies, that the discussion was, or the, kind of the phrase they used was that they farmed out Christian education. Oh, like from the parents. From the parents the... to the church. Which, on one hand, I mean, that sounds like you know, oh, you know, I farmed out my child's ge- geography. <laughs> Really yeah, weird. which I mean, spiritual education is far more important than you know calculus in in, in, in like the cosmic sense. Yeah, not, not to be down on calculus, but yes, I yeah, it's, yeah. it's not quite a fair comparison. It's not quite a fair comparison, but it there's some truth to that. There has been this shift in the past fifteen years of the youth leader instead of the youth leader running like being in charge of all of the Christian ed and stuff like that and all of the youth ministry and stuff like that. There's a shift of how does the like paid staff person or volunteer yeah. equip the parent to yeah. take on some yeah. of that. Yeah. Well, um, like, or, or like how, how can the youth leader support the parents, yeah. help them, guide them, whatever, whatever it is, like, give the resources to parents that they need and then themselves offer complimentary programming at the church. Correct. Yeah. That is exactly right. Yeah. Um, it's one of the reasons why I've, have pushed we hand out these these story bibles that i keep talking about is because they are because you want them at the, at the bedtime i want them at bedtime mm-hmm. like they shouldn't just be um in seen it. some sunday school yeah. yeah yeah i wrote a blog post back in january i'm a very sporadic blogger but i wrote this blog post and i actually did the math of if i see a child for two hours a week i think that's only like t- no it can't be that low that's 110 hours a year yeah it's 110 hours a week yeah um but i want to say it's like two percent of the like Two point some odd percent of the week. Oh yeah, yeah, it's hardly anything. It's hardly anything when you're talking yeah. about um, a child's a, life, a child, child's life, or even a child's week. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you want those stories. You want the you want those songs. You want those in in the mm-hmm. in in the home life. In the home life, in mm-hmm. the DNA, not just in the DNA of the church, but the DNA in the home mm-hmm. too. Yeah. yeah. And you know, teaching. What would it look like if you were teaching table graces in the middle of worship? Like the praise God from whom all blessings flow, which is, we use mm-hmm. that as a table grace in a lot mm-hmm. of places. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's always appropriate, but what would that look like? Or, I mean, yeah, what would that look like? Mm-hmm. You know, we teach them, we sometimes teach them in Sunday school openings as well, mm-hmm. which might be a little more of an appropriate thing. But, you know, giving parents those tools of how do they do this at home? Yeah. How do we as worship leaders teach a parent or equip a parent to have a, a right of blessing, if you will, Mm-hmm. for the beginning of school. So it's something that's done in yeah. the home. The beginning of school, um, I don't know, before a test, before mm-hmm. a doctor's, before a scary doctor's appointment, mm-hmm. you know, before a first date, before, mm-hmm. like... Or even, like, that that would even be on a parent's radar. Yeah. So that they're teaching their child to have it on their radar as, like, oh, this is something that we can bring to God. Yeah. This, some... is a, this isn't something that we do in isolation or that, that we do apart apart from the rest of our... Correct. Our life, that the, the church, that that our faith permeates. Yeah. Our lives. Yeah. yeah. And how? Yeah. How do we as church leaders do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the answer is, it's not going to look the same for every congregation. Thanks to Anita Smolin for the conversation today. Show notes for this episode are at musicandthechurch.com/34. 
You can get in touch by sending me an email at musicandthechurch@gmail.com. I'm Sarah Brisa, and I'll be back next month with another episode of Music and the Church.